0: Well, hello, hello. I'm Nurse Mo, and this is the Straight A Nursing Podcast where I teach concepts and share tips on how to thrive in nursing school and beyond at the bedside. So, today we're talking about pulmonary hypertension, which is a condition in which there are high pressures within pulmonary circulation. Before we dive into our topic, let's start off with three stat facts. So, one, While you'll hear that there is absolutely no cure for pulmonary hypertension and only treatments available to manage the condition, there are actually two possible cures. One is lung transplant, and the other is a surgical procedure that could be curative in a certain type of pulmonary hypertension. We'll talk about that in this episode. Number two. Pulmonary arterial hypertension, or group one pulmonary hypertension, is rare and affects only between two and eight people per million worldwide. It's still an awful lot of people, though, that suffer from this condition. And number three, pulmonary hypertension is very difficult to diagnose. An accurate diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension can take years. One study showed a third of people diagnosed with pulmonary arterial hypertension waited more than two years for a diagnosis, while another 25% waited almost three years. All right, so now that I've got you intrigued to learn more about pulmonary hypertension, let's dive into a brief overview and a bit about the pathophysiology. So, in normal cardiopulmonary circulation, blood flows easily through the vessels of the lungs. It's a low pressure system. So, blood's going to flow really easily through there. And while it's flowing through the lungs, it participates in gas exchange, offloading carbon dioxide and picking up oxygen. However, pathologic changes to pulmonary vasculature lead to vasoconstriction, endothelial dysfunction, smooth muscle hypertrophy thrombosis, and or vascular remodeling. And the result is that blood flow through the pulmonary vessels is decreased or even occluded in some cases, which causes pressures to increase, leading to pulmonary hypertension, and increased pulmonary vascular resistance. This causes that right ventricle to have to work a lot harder to overcome this elevated vascular pressure and results in right ventricular hypertrophy and eventually heart failure. Now, there is an associated condition when this occurs in newborns. So when pulmonary hypertension occurs in newborns, it is called persistent pulmonary hypertension of the newborn. And these babies can have a range of long-term complications, including significant neurodevelopmental impairments, hearing impairments, cerebral palsy, and decreased ability to engage in physical activity as they get older due to diminished lung function. So let's talk a bit about the five subgroups of pulmonary hypertension. So group one, Pulmonary hypertension is pulmonary arterial hypertension, or PAH, and this is caused by a variety of factors, including connective tissue disease, sickle cell anemia, congenital heart disease, it can be a consequence of HIV, it can be associated with liver disease, certain medications, some toxins, including things like recreational drugs, such as methamphetamine, And schistosomiasis, which is a parasitic infection. In some cases, there is no known cause, in which case it is termed idiopathic pulmonary arterial hypertension. And in other cases, it can be inherited. So that was group one pulmonary hypertension. Group two, pulmonary hypertension, is a type that is caused by left-sided heart failure, which can be associated with a variety of conditions such as mitral valve disease, congenital cardiomyopathy, and long-term hypertension. And then group three, pulmonary hypertension, is a result of lung disease such as COPD, sleep apnea, interstitial lung diseases, including sarcoidosis and pulmonary fibrosis, and chronic hypoxia. These conditions cause pulmonary vasoconstriction, which leads to higher pressures and pulmonary hypertension. Group 4 pulmonary hypertension is a form caused by chronic blood clots or pulmonary emboli, or the scars from blood clots. And other clotting disorders that the patient may have. And then group 5 pulmonary hypertension is a subtype that includes pulmonary hypertension related to other health conditions such as polycythemia vera, vasculitis, kidney disease, metabolic disorders including toxic multinodular goiter, glycogen storage disease, and tumors that compress the pulmonary arteries. So again, that was five subgroups of pulmonary hypertension. Group one is pulmonary arterial hypertension. Group two is secondary to left-sided heart failure. Group three is related to lung diseases like COPD. Group four is related to chronic blood clots. And group five is associated with other health conditions. So you might be wondering about prognosis, about survival rates. So survival rates will vary depending on which group of pulmonary hypertension the patient has. Untreated, the prognosis for all types is poor, which is why it's really important that patients be diagnosed and start treatment early in the course of their disease. For example pulmonary arterial hypertension registries report survival rates of between 68% and 93% at one year and 39% and 77% at three years. So kind of a big range there. Even with treatment, the leading cause of death for patients with pulmonary hypertension is right ventricular failure. So who's most at risk for pulmonary hypertension? In general, you're going to see pulmonary hypertension affecting individuals with underlying lung or heart conditions like we just talked about, even though in some cases it can be idiopathic and it can be inherited. So looking at valve disease, interestingly, almost 100% of individuals who have severe mitral valve disease... And about 65% of those with aortic valve disease develop pulmonary hypertension. And then scleroderma. Approximately 30% of individuals with this connective tissue disease develop pulmonary hypertension. And then sickle cell disease. Pulmonary hypertension affects about 20 to 40% of individuals with sickle cell. And then some other factors that increase an individual's risk are asbestos exposure, living at high altitudes, smoking, and recreational drug use. So now that you have a baseline understanding of pulmonary hypertension, let's dive into caring for these patients using the straight A nursing latte method. So we will start with the letter L. How does the patient look? Basically, what are their signs and symptoms? So the signs and symptoms of pulmonary hypertension develop gradually, and many patients may not notice these signs and symptoms for months or even years. As the condition progresses, signs and symptoms are going to become more prominent and worsen, and they include dyspnea on exertion. As that disease progresses, Patients will experience dyspnea at rest as well. Another one is syncope or dizziness, also fatigue. The patient could have chest pain or chest pressure, feel palpitations, have tachycardia. They could even have dysrhythmias such as atrial fibrillation or atrial flutter. They may have a decreased appetite. They could even have cyanosis due to hypoxia. And then they may also have those signs and symptoms of right-sided heart failure, peripheral edema, ascites, hepatomegaly, and jugular vein distension. Now, the World Health Organization has defined four functional classes to help define the severity of disease in patients with pulmonary hypertension and if this sounds familiar, it's very similar to the functional classes for heart failure. So class one, pulmonary hypertension, is the patient has no limitations on their activity and basically does not notice any symptoms. In class two, the patient has slight limitations on their activity. Physical activity will cause some symptoms, but there are no symptoms at all while the patient is at rest. In class 3, the patient notices symptoms even with light physical activity or ordinary daily activities, but there are no symptoms while resting. And then with class 4, the patient has noticeable symptoms even when at rest. So that was the letter L in the latte method, which again is the signs and symptoms. Next is the letter A, which refers to how we assess these patients. So your priority assessments for a patient with pulmonary hypertension are really going to be revolving around the respiratory and the cardiovascular system. So looking at respiratory assessment, what do we want to do here? We want to listen to their lungs. We want to assess respiratory rate and work of breathing and assess for dyspnea at rest and with exertion. We're also going to look at their SpO2 and look for signs of cyanosis, which will look different depending on the patient's skin color. So in individuals with lighter skin tones, cyanosis appears as bluish or a purplish hue. In those with more yellow-toned skin, cyanosis appears more greenish or grayish. And in those with darker skin tones, cyanosis presents as a grayish-whitish color around the lips or tongue and a bluish tinge at the conjunctiva, nail beds, and the palms. We also want to do a thorough cardiovascular assessment. So we're assessing heart rate. We're assessing that heart rhythm. Remember, these patients are at risk for arrhythmias, such as atrial fibrillation. We'll monitor blood pressure and check their capillary refill. We're looking for that good perfusion. Make note of skin signs, which could indicate poor perfusion, such as coolness and pallor or even mottling. Assess for jugular vein distension and peripheral edema, both of which are signs of right-sided heart failure. And then if the patient has peripheral edema, you'll grade the edema from mild, which is plus one, to plus four, which is that deep pitting edema. And then you also want to just make note of how far up the legs the edema exists. You start down at the feet and work your way up. You also want to palpate pulses to determine if the heart rhythm is regular or irregular, but also to determine the quality of the pulse. Zero would be no palpable pulse. Hopefully we don't have that situation. And three is a bounding pulse. Some patients may have an audible murmur if they've got, for example, a valve disorder. And S3 may be audible in patients whose condition has progressed to heart failure. You'll also assess for chest pain and palpitations as well. You're also monitoring I's and O's, keeping very careful track for these patients and weighing the patient daily. You also want to ask the patient about symptoms of fatigue and how much this impacts their quality of life and ability to perform their ADLs. Let's take a quick break and then we'll dive into the tests for pulmonary hypertension. The next letter and the LATTE method is a T, and that stands for TESTS. So what tests might be conducted for a patient with pulmonary hypertension? So as I said before, the diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension can be difficult and be prolonged, and it is often arrived at when other possible causes for the patient's symptoms have been ruled out. In addition to the MD conducting a full physical assessment, a full history Some diagnostic tests include, for starters, an echocardiogram. This test measures pulmonary artery pressure and right atrial pressure. It also evaluates the degree of both right and left ventricular dysfunction. It can also help determine if the pulmonary hypertension is arterial or venous in nature. Now, a patient with pulmonary hypertension has a mean pulmonary artery pressure That's greater than 25 millimeters of mercury at rest or higher than 30 millimeters of mercury with activity. And for reference, a normal value is about 12 to 16-ish millimeters of mercury. You may see some variety in that range depending on what resource that you're using. So again, an echocardiogram, a really useful non-invasive test for evaluating a patient with pulmonary hypertension. Another non invasive test is a 12 lead EKG. An EKG could show right ventricular hypertrophy and right axis deviation, as well as any dysrhythmias such as atrial fibrillation. Now, if that patient has that echocardiogram and it's looking like they have a diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension, they very likely could then get referred to a more invasive test, which is a right-sided cardiac catheterization. Now, this is that gold standard test for pulmonary hypertension. It is used to provide some really detailed measurements and evaluation of pulmonary artery pressure, pulmonary artery occlusion pressure, mixed venous oxygen saturation, and to conduct something called the vasoreactivity test. Now, this test involves the administration of a vasoactive substance and looks at the response of the pulmonary vasculature. If the pulmonary vessels dilate, this indicates that medications that cause pulmonary arterial vasodilation, like calcium channel blockers, may be helpful for the patient, and these patients tend to have a better prognosis. So the patient who is vasoreactive could have a better prognosis and may be able to be managed with a calcium channel blocker. We also may do imaging studies of this patient. This would include chest CT or cardiac MRI to provide detailed images of the structures of the heart and surrounding vessels and other structures. This would be the case where we're looking at how much has this pulmonary hypertension affected the heart. And then a chest x ray. A chest x ray shows the size and shape of the heart, which can be helpful in monitoring for worsening heart failure. And then there's a functional assessment called the six minute walk distance test. And in this test, the patient walks as far as they can on a treadmill for six minutes. When done regularly, This test not only provides a baseline, but then done regularly, it provides a way to monitor for disease progression and the patient's response to therapy. An ABG may be utilized to determine the degree of hypoxemia. And then blood tests. Blood tests could provide information about potential causes for pulmonary hypertension, such as thyroid disorders, kidney disease. Polycythemia vera, or a clotting disorder, among many, many other potential related conditions. A BNP is an important biomarker that is elevated in heart failure and can be utilized to monitor the progression of this particular complication. And genetic tests may also be conducted if the pulmonary hypertension is thought to be inherited. The patient could also undergo a ventilation perfusion scan or a VQ scan. If blood clots are suspected to be the cause of the pulmonary hypertension, this test can show if clots are present. In a VQ scan, a radioactive substance is injected through an IV so that blood flow can be visualized. Airflow through the lungs can also be visualized by having the patient inhale a radioactive tracer as well. And then there are pulmonary function tests, or PFTs. PFTs may be utilized to determine if the patient has underlying pulmonary disease, which could be the cause of pulmonary hypertension. And then what about a sleep study? Since obstructive sleep apnea can cause pulmonary hypertension, this test may be conducted to help determine the underlying cause. Patients may also undergo an exercise stress test. This test evaluates how the heart functions during stress which can help determine the cause of the patient's symptoms. So the next letter in the LATTE method is a T, and that stands for treatments. What are the key treatments provided for patients with pulmonary hypertension? So treatment will depend on which group of pulmonary hypertension the patient has and current direct treatments actually only exist for group 1, which is pulmonary arterial hypertension, and group 4, which is chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. Other therapies aim to address the underlying causative factors and decrease symptoms. Now, since in most cases, there is no cure for pulmonary hypertension, the goals of therapy are going to be to minimize those symptoms, like I just mentioned, and then prevent or delay progression while preserving as much pulmonary and cardiac function as possible. So we have quite a few pharmacologic treatments available for pulmonary hypertension, and one of those is that calcium channel blocker that I mentioned earlier. The evidence is suggesting and showing that calcium channel blockers may be useful in patients With group one pulmonary hypertension, who had a positive vasoreactivity test during their right sided heart catheterization. Commonly used medications are long acting nifedipine and diltiazem. Note that the reason we do that vasoreactivity test is because if we would give calcium channel blockers to a non reactive individual, this would cause significant hypotension and the patient could even die. So that was calcium channel blockers. Next we have phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitors and the main drug here is sildenafil which goes by the brand name Revatio. So PDE5 inhibitors are utilized to promote pulmonary vasodilation and decrease proliferation of vascular muscle cells in individuals who have that group 1 pulmonary hypertension, which as a reminder is pulmonary arterial hypertension. Common adverse effects include GI upset, headache, and muscle and joint pain. Another type of medication that may be used is an endothelin receptor antagonist, and a common one here is Ambrycentin, which goes by the brand name Lateris. Another one is bosentin, which goes by the brand name Triclear. Medications in this class are typically used in combination with sildenafil for patients with that group one pulmonary hypertension or pulmonary arterial hypertension. The medication Ryosiguat, which goes by a brand name Adempus, is primarily used for those with group 4 thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, but also has shown benefit for those with group 1 pulmonary hypertension. It's used to improve vascular resistance, exercise tolerance, and symptoms while also increasing time to clinical worsening. So basically delaying that worsening. Prostaglandin pathway agonists like selexipag, has vasodilatory properties and is used for individuals with group 1 pulmonary hypertension. It's been shown to delay disease progression and reduce the risk for hospitalization due to pulmonary hypertension. For patients that aren't able to be managed on those oral medications, they may need parenteral medication, and the medication is a prostanoid. And again, this would be for patients typically with class 4 or high-risk pulmonary hypertension. They could get IV epoprostenol or subcutaneous tripostanil. These medications are used for their vasodilatory properties, and note that epoprostenol is administered via an implanted central venous catheter using a portable infusion pump. So those are the key medication types used as direct therapy for pulmonary hypertension, but what about symptom management? A key one is a diuretic like furosemide. Furosemide reduces edema by removing excess fluid. Patients with thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension or group 4 may be on an anticoagulant such as warfarin to decrease blood clots. Some other potential treatments include oxygen as needed to maintain adequate SpO2 and or SaO2 arterial oxygen levels. And then, of course, we're going to be looking at treating the underlying cause when possible. So if a patient has pulmonary hypertension as a consequence of some underlying disease condition, can we improve their pulmonary hypertension by addressing that other disease condition? We'll also treat right-sided heart failure and any associated complications such as dysrhythmias or low cardiac output. Maybe the patient will get something like digoxin to improve cardiac output. A surgical procedure called balloon pulmonary angioplasty is a procedure that uses a balloon to widen the pulmonary artery and is a possible treatment option for those with group 4 or chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. And at the beginning of this episode, I mentioned two potentially curative type treatments. So let's talk about what those are. One of those is a surgical procedure called pulmonary thromboendarterectomy, and this procedure removes blood clots from the lungs and could be potentially curative for someone with group 4 or chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. Even if it's not curative for that person, most patients experience significant relief of symptoms and improvement in their hemodynamics. And then the other possibly curative, I'm using air quotes here because this is not Not necessarily you get this done and then you move on with your life, but a potential procedure for patients who are not responsive to treatment would be a lung transplant. Again, of course, you would then still have to deal with all the issues and follow up medical care and medications that come with organ transplant, but that is another potential treatment. And now the next letter in the Latte Method is an E, and that is for educate. How do we educate our patient, our family about pulmonary hypertension? And there's a lot of education here. I picked out some of the key things. So some important lifestyle modifications for a patient with pulmonary hypertension are to get regular, moderate exercise, such as walking or cycling. They should follow a heart healthy diet, which involves avoiding processed foods, foods with a lot of sodium, foods high in fat, and adding in, you know, good whole foods, fruits and vegetables, whole grains, high fiber foods, things like that. They should also maintain a consistent sleep schedule, which gives the body time to rest and recover from the day's activities. And if they smoke, they should definitely quit smoking. It's also important to educate individuals who are thinking about having a family that pregnancy with pulmonary hypertension is very, very risky, so they should be encouraged to discuss birth control options and family planning with their pulmonologist. Patients who are taking a diuretic should be encouraged to enjoy foods high in potassium and magnesium such as bananas, oranges, peanuts, and broccoli because furosemide, the common diuretic used, is going to cause losses of key electrolytes. Patients with pulmonary hypertension may need to take special precautions when flying, such as using supplemental oxygen to minimize pulmonary vasoconstriction due to hypoxia that could occur at that high altitude, and they may need to avoid traveling to high altitude locations. And if they are traveling to a high altitude location, they may need to use supplemental oxygen when they're in that location as well. Patients with heart failure should be taught how to monitor their fluid intake and recognize signs of fluid overload. They definitely need to be taught to weigh themselves daily, for example. Patients should know when to seek medical attention. This includes sustained tachycardia, dyspnea that is not resolved with rest or sudden and severe chest pain. Patients should be advised to take measures to avoid infection, and that includes receiving all recommended vaccinations, and patients with an implanted central venous catheter who are getting that continuous IV medication need to know how to monitor for complications like infection or a dislodged catheter, bleeding, or an IV pump malfunction, or an occlusion. If any problems occur, they need to seek medical treatment. So there you have it, your overview of pulmonary hypertension. I hope you found that helpful. I certainly learned a lot while building this episode for you. And I really hope that it helps you be even more awesome at the bedside. So before we close out, I do want to take a minute for our listener shout out. And I hope I say your name right. This one goes out to Saber or Sabre. Hopefully one of those is right. I think it's Saber. And Saber had this to say. I have been listening to your podcast during my first semester in nursing school. I listened to you almost every day while out walking. And when I added study sesh, it was a game changer. I actually heard your voice a few times while taking different tests. And of course, that voice led me to the right answer. I always said a quick, thanks, Nurse Mo, and smiled to myself. I finished my first semester with an A and you were there for me. And you were there with me through all of it. I just want to say a quick congratulations to Saber for absolutely crushing nursing school. I'm so happy that the start of your nursing career is beginning in such a positive way. And I'm thrilled to have been there with you for that. If you're curious what Saber is talking about when she mentioned Study Sesh, I will put a link to that in the episode notes. Study Sesh is my private podcast where we do drills and pod quizzes and a few other things to really help you review information when you are on the go i hope you found this episode helpful and that if you did you are following the show and subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode and i hope to see you back here next week where we will talk about neural tube defects and i'm really happy to say that straighty nursing is part of the airwave media network i encourage you to check them out they have a lot of really great shows one i'm really liking is called small things often which is focused on giving your relationships a boost in five minutes or less. These are simple, quick, proven tips to help. You have better relationships. And I know when you're a busy nurse and you're working a lot or you're just working in a really stressful environment, or if you're in nursing school, sometimes your relationships can maybe not get as much attention as you would like. So this is a great podcast to just give those important relationships in your life a boost. Again, it's called Small Things Often. You should definitely check it out. So I will see you back here next week to talk about neural tube defects. See you then. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing, a proud member of the Airwave Media Network. For more educational podcasts, check out airwavemedia.com. And for more nursing related content, go to straightanursingstudent.com.